0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today we're bringing you an encore episode from the archives. This rebroadcast featuring Katie Couric and Beau Willimon first aired in 2015 just before the third season of House of Cards. Willimon is the creator of the political drama. House of Cards fifth season releases on Netflix today. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. We're working on a special podcast project that will air the week of the Aspen Ideas Festival in late June. Stay tuned for that and enjoy this encore show. And a warning, adult language is used in this episode. Here are Katie Couric and Beau Willimon.
1: I know that you studied to be a painter, but you didn't feel as if you really were exceptionally talented in that department. So you ended up at Columbia. You wrote a play, kind of on a lark, I understand, because you wanted to do something that would really test you, where you actually might fail. And you ended up getting an award for that play. And that really changed the trajectory of your life, didn't it? What What was the moment that you said, I, I want to be a writer, and I want to write for for the stage or for other theatrical things? Um,
2: uh, it, it all seems to make much more sense in retrospect at the time. I mean, basically, I was a kid like any other who had no idea what the hell I was doing with my life. and. Um, in terms of the moment I wanted to become a writer, I, I don't think I don't know if I could say that there was a moment. I, I guess when I look back, I, I was always writing. I mean, I was writing um, stories and poetry poorly uh, as a kid. Um, painting was what I was drawn to because uh, I had a sort of natural facility for it that could easily impress. And, and as I said to the few folks here, to, you know, that, that were at the Eisner thing uh, yesterday. Uh, that sort of talent, like painting and music, that those sort of things, you can have a facility that um, will dazzle a lot of people, but doesn't mean that you're actually struggling with anything uh, original, you know, or 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 really going to battle with the universe. Um, it, it's sort of all on the surface, and and that's what I felt in college uh, that I was doing hundreds of paintings, uh, and yet none of them were speaking to me. Uh, so. I wrote this play mostly because I saw a, a flyer at the student center. I tore it down, which is probably why I won. Um, <laughs> and uh it, and uh <laughs> That was
1: so Frank Underwood of you.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um and uh it it did. It gave me it gave me just enough encouragement to think, you know, maybe this is something I I I could do with my life. I was very lucky to have that person um who believed in me. Uh, really for no reason at all a, a great playwright named Eduardo Machado a great Cuban American playwright uh, who I sort of bullied my way into one of his classes even though I was no longer in school uh, sort of took it illegally um, and he let me sit in and then said apply to my program and uh, I will take you and I said well you've read one page of anything I've ever written, why would you take me? And he goes, oh, I run the program, I can do whatever I want. Um, and he stuck to his word and, and took me in, and, um, you know, sort of stumbling along, uh, it became evident to me that there was no turning back. I, I didn't really have a choice in this.
1: You know, a bit, but during, you were at Columbia and while you are in school and even after school, I guess, well, I guess into your mid-twenties, you dabbled in politics. You worked for Chuck Schumer for a while. I always say the most dangerous place on the planet is between Chuck Schumer and, and a, a TV camera. camera. Yeah. yeah. And and you, you also worked for how... The most
2: dangerous place is in the car with him, when you're driving him to a Mets game so that he can go and shake people's hands, Hi, I'm Chuck. I'm running for Senate. I'm running for Senate. Hi, I'm Chuck. Uh, and then you get at a red light and say, like, you're too slow. Get out of the driver's seat. I'm, and you get out at the intersection, gets behind the wheel, and he goes, all right, all right, put on your seatbelt. And then he barrels his way through Brooklyn and C- Queens while you're just sort of holding on for dear life. So... Um, yeah, that rivals the TV camera, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. you
1: know. You also work for Howard Dean, Hillary Clinton, and uh, you saw firsthand, I guess, witnessed firsthand the interactions between politicians, their staff, the media. And, and I'm curious what your impressions were of the political world um, after you spent time in, you know, in those various offices.
2: A lot of people assume that uh, all these campaigns must have made me incredibly jaded and cynical uh, because they see Ides of March or House of Cards and go, wow, that's that's pretty dark what happened to that kid. Um, I have to say, for the most part, my experiences were uh, pretty wonderful. I mean, I, I, uh, I was surrounded by a lot of hardworking young people. Uh, you know, the people who get presidents elected are like the median age is like 25. I mean, it, it really is a bunch of people who are working their asses off, 100 hours a week um, for very little pay, if any, uh, because they believe in someone and they and they really do think that in their own small way they can they can change the world. Uh, the first campaign I worked on, Chuck's, was really just um, because uh, I ha- you know. It seemed like a fun thing to do, you know. Uh, I really didn't know anything about him. My pal Jay Carson, uh, who's the political consultant on House of Cards, best, my best friend, pulled me into the campaign, and it was adrenaline. It was excitement. It was, you know, why be in class when we could be driving two hundred yard signs up to Rochester, New York, overnight, <laughs> you know? Um, and we won. And there's nothing better than winning. So I, I wanted to go back for more. Uh, you win some, you lose some. I worked for Bradley. He lost. I worked for Hillary. She won. I worked for Dean. He lost big. Uh, And I I don't know if I was sort of analyzing the whole process then. I mean, you can become a little jaded and depressed when your candidate loses, but then the next candidate comes along and and you get excited all over again. So it's not this trajectory from idealism to jadedness. it's, It's a pendulum. I mean, I have a lot of friends that work in politics who've been on a dirty, tough campaign and say, I'm getting out, I'm never doing it again. Next cycle rolls around, they're like, I found this is the real one. This is the one. Like This is the one that's going to actually change things. Um, and I I maintain that as much as anyone. You know, you do see things, and you do experience um, the roll-up-the-sleeves, bare-knuckle type of politics that I experienced in New York or presidential. Um, it opens your eyes a little bit, but I don't think that's any different than a lot of other industries, as it were, I mean, Wall Street, you know, uh, uh, Hollywood, um, you know, they can be just as nasty, uh, but also just as invigorating and wonderful.
1: And you were doing press advance, I guess, for Howard Dean, when he had that terrible moment, that Munk moment of the ah! scream. And, uh, you know, I remember I was covering that when that happened, and I felt so bad for Howard Dean because I knew it was an audio issue that he sounded like a lunatic but he did was you know I know you described this because it was a room full of screaming crazy people and because only his audio was being picked up he sounded much crazier I mean isn't that wasn't that disillusioning that a moment like that could completely Implode a candidacy altogether. I mean, no, I, I the, thought it was sad.
2: Well, look, I mean, it wasn't that moment that imploded uh, the the candidacy. I mean, the candidacy had already imploded. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why Dean lost, and I won't bore you with all of them. But um, there were a lot of missteps along the way, and and probably the biggest reason he lost is because he didn't want to win. You know, I, I don't I don't know if Howard Dean truly and honestly wanted to be president. I don't think he ever dreamed he would be a front runner. Um, You know, he he was being vaulted as this progressive, outspoken candidate, and he was, to a degree, because he was the first major candidate to come out against the war. Uh, We think back now, that seemed, you know, for a lot of us, obvious, Uh, but it was pretty incendiary when he, at the Winter Democratic Convention... um, said said those words what do I, what I want to know is this and what I want to know is this um but but actually he was a fiscally conservative moderate democrat from Vermont you know he 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 was not the image that uh, a lot of people believed him to be, and that's not his fault. Uh, but then there was, you know, in terms of management of the campaign, a whole host of other things, plus the fact that John Kerry's people had been on the ground for two years. Michael Hooley, his field director, is a genius, um, really knows how to win it on the ground, on and on and on. The, the key thing about the deed and scream is if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else because the deeper narrative that was bubbling forth was that this guy is a loose cannon and not electable. That was already being said. Uh, if, that, if it hadn't been the Dean Scream, something else would have played into that narrative and filled that void because all of you, all of us, needed that in order to allow ourselves to discard this guy. Um, and, you know, Right after that, I remember <clears throat> I helped set up that event. We didn't know until the next day that the Dean Scream was going to be what it was going to be. We were just all bummed that he was third place. So we get on a plane in New Hampshire, uh, and we're, we're all happy to be leaving Iowa because it's so freaking cold. And we're like, but we're going to New Hampshire. It's gonna be even colder. Um, and we land at three in the morning in Manchester and there's a big rally, people uh, at the airport. We just all, all wanna pass out because we we'd lost big and we know it's gonna be a tough fight. Um, and next day, the dean scream is pay, played something like six hundred and seventy-two times, I think, in one cycle. And that night, uh, Jay brought me to, and this is one of these sort of fly on the wall moments for me. Jay was the at the ripe old age of twenty-six, the national spokesman for the dean campaign. Um, he took me to a bar, not unlike this one, and I'm sitting around with like the head New York Times, you know, person, Washington Post, Newsweek, you know, all the big uh, uh, pencils, uh, and. Um, and Adam Nagurney, who was covering for the New York Times, uh, and who's now a friend and a great, great journalist, who's the LA bureau chief now for the Times, um, I say, Adam, what do you think? And he goes, he's sort of like, he's sort of like this all the time. He's like, I smell death. <laughs> and uh, it's a pretty good Adam, right? Um, and when the New York Times says, I smell death, you know it's over already. I mean, it, we had weeks to go. Uh, you threw in the towel in Wisconsin, but it had actually been over before the Dean scream.
1: Well, let's talk. Of, I, I know you did "I of March," which I which I loved, uh, based on Farragut North," which was a play you, you wrote. But I mean, let's can we talk? Can we go right to "House of Cards"? Yeah, do okay, it. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. So, so you know, how has your experience in politics? I mean, how did it inform the the character creation? Uh, in House of Cards I mean I just uh, because I mean it's it's striking that you did work in politics and obviously this is a political thriller I guess you might call it and and are any of the characters based on it's anyone? a romantic comedy yeah. <laughs> I mean how, how did, how spo- did your
2: aren't those smoking <laughs> scenes really I thought they are supposed to be funny <laughs> <laughs> I do love the way those are shot by
1: the way at the yeah. window with it all kind mm-hmm. of Going out the window, but but did did it sort of affect the way that you wrote yeah, it? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, uh, look, I had a lot of uh, great stuff to work from because uh, House of Cards, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, was a, there was a BBC version of it that aired in the 90s. Um, wonderful. Uh, uh, scripts by Andrew Davies a- uh, Ian Richardson was extraordinary in it um, very different than ours uh, much more satirical and tongue-in-cheek and, and much more compact You know, there was only a grand total of 12 episodes over three years uh, that in turn was actually based on novels by Lord Michael Dobbs Who had been a high-level advisor in the Thatcher administration? Um, There's a guy who has some real blood on his hands. Yeah, Yeah. very charming guy. I love Michael. He gave me a tour of the House of Lords. It was very cool. Um, But he, I mean, he really had been in it at the highest levels. My experience in politics had always been in the trenches. You know, you say head of press advance, but I'm like the guy making sure the governor has like toilet paper in his bathroom when he comes to the event, and that, and that the, you know. You know, oh, uh, Jody Wagoner likes uh, she likes carrot sticks, so I'll have those in the van when I drive her to the event. Um, so, <clears throat> I, my experience in politics, practically speaking, was always very low level because I knew Jay, and he would invite me to things like that, those drinks in Manchester or a dinner where Joe Trippy was, you know, giving one of his kind of uh, in- incredible monologues about how we were going to take over the planet. Um, you know, I I had access uh, to the sort of inner sanctum, but I was never a participant, which I think was an advantage for me because I I didn't have as much skin in that game. Um, When we approached our version of House of Cards, the first thing I said to David Fincher who who sort of got it all going and and gave me the phone, you know, gave me the chance really to to dive into this world is, I don't want to do an adaptation. I don't want to just repeat this um, BBC version. I want to reinvent it. I want to make it our own. Uh, And because we knew if we found a home for it, we'd have a lot more hours to contend with than the BBC version. That meant creating a lot of new characters uh, and, and uh, you know the, the templates that we used from the BBC version, expanding and deepening them and making big changes to them, um, certainly drew from... Uh, a lot of people that I met along the way in the political world. None of the characters are based on anyone in particular. They're sort of amalgamations. But I also draw uh, from my parents. I draw from my friends. I draw from something you know I see on the subway. And and I don't mean pushing someone. I mean I you know just the just you know I mean you know I draw from a rib joint. I I, I draw from a lot of different things. Um, I guess the experience that I had in politics just sort of me at a starting line to feel comfortable in a pretty inside baseball world where I, I didn't uh, sort of walk into it with crutches. I, I, I sort of got it already.
1: And, and let's talk about sort of the development of, of Frank Underwood. Um, how did you come up? First of all, I know that Kevin and Robin were on board almost right, right away. I mean, were there any other people that you talked to or even considered to be Frank Underwood? Because Kevin Spacey is so perfect in that role. I mean, he's so smarmy. <laughs> and not in real life, but in the in the show. Yeah, uh, maybe a little. Really, in life. no.
2: I mean, the the, the, <laughs> the honest answer is is we really didn't, you know, even talk or consider other possibilities because in our minds, if we didn't, if Kevin couldn't do it or didn't agree to do it, it really wasn't worth doing. I worked on the first draft, uh, multiple versions of the first uh, episode for I don't know about five or six months before we started seriously talking about who would play this person. And Fincher and Kevin had um, you know, a relationship going back to Seven. Uh, and then uh, Kevin was one of the producers on Social Network. And, and Fincher had said, uh, well, what about Kevin? And immediately, all of us, all four of us, it was me, Fincher, and his two producing partners, Eric Roth, legendary screenwriter, and, and Josh Donnan. We were all like, yep, that's the guy. And then we couldn't get out of our head. We couldn't imagine anyone else. Luckily, Kevin said yes. So we knew we had our Frank Underwood. And then Eric Roth, who had worked with Robin Wright uh, in Forrest Gump, she played Jenny in that, um, uh, said, what about Robin for Claire? And Claire was still a work in progress. I mean, I knew we were basically inventing a character from scratch, and she went through many versions before we landed with the Claire that that you, if you've watched the show, are familiar with. And... um, there, absolutely, We same thing. We were just like, it, it has to be Robin. Uh, David was working with her on Dragon Tattoo at the time, just a tiny little role. And as soon as we got Robin into our mind, and, and I spoke to her uh, and saying, look, what you see on the page is not what this will be. She was much more of a sort of arm candy socialite in the original versions of the script. And I said, I know this isn't enough. I know it's not good enough. I know it's not the role that you deserve but this is the direction I want to head and I want to create it with you. And I had an amazing two-hour conversation with her and Claire started to take shape. So um,
1: did she give you a lot of input in terms of who Claire ultimately would be?
2: It wasn't so much her coming to me with ideas about who Claire was. It was more me coming to her with pages or ideas uh, and discussing them with her. And when you talk to Robin, she has a, v- a unique... Cadence to her voice. Uh, She has a complete command of her body. She started out as a dancer. I can tell you a really amazing story about her at fifteen and Mikhail Baryshnikov. We should, we'll get to that in a second. But um, there's she starts to seep into you. I I don't know any other way to describe it than that. You begin to absorb her, uh, and when you absorb her, then it's like I would squeeze myself like a sponge and try to get that back onto the page. Um, so she's incredibly insightful about script and character, but it's not as though she's saying, this is the role I want to play. She's saying, she's responding to the role you've given her, and it becomes a sort of, um, you know, it's like you're... When you're
1: shooting or at a table read or...
2: Well, uh, all along the way, but this was just initially for the first script, uh-huh. right? <clears throat> and then as we began filming, uh, what became clear to me is that she needed a lot fewer lines, but more time on screen. So what she's I'm,
1: so great to look at. I yeah, mean, well it,
2: I, I don't mean just not just looking at her. It's that what one of the great lessons I learned from Robin was was that uh, if you pared it down to the absolute minimum and let all of the act, of the action, the emotional life happen between the lines for her, you would get the most dynamic performance and story because what she excels at is having so many different colors sort of shimmer beneath the skin. Uh, And when you try to railroad her into certain emotional choices, you don't give her the opportunity to play. And Robin loves to play. Uh, in In between takes, she'll say, hey, can I try this? Or can I do that? Or can we just take this line out? Or what if I did this? And invariably, we're always like, yeah, go for it. Let's see what happens. She wants to take risks. She wants to push each scene in a lot of different directions, and it's a constant process of surprise and discovery. Yeah.
1: And she she directed an episode. She did as well. And you know I had so much hope for her when the when the series started, and I have to say I've completely lost faith. I I I am so upset at what she's become. (laughs)
2: I don't know even how to respond to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how do you mean?
1: Well, she's just, I mean, I guess soulless comes to mind. Machiavellian, Lady Macbeth. I mean, I know.
2: Do you think she's soulless, truly? I do,
1: actually. I think she's become soulless. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought she was just much more, I mean, I knew she had some negative, quali- you know, bad qualities. But I just feel like she's just completely and utterly sold out. And I can't stand her now. <laughs> I'm sorry, but do, I mean, can't, you you can understand that, can't you, Bo?
2: Well, no, I mean, if I couldn't stand her, I'm. The, I definitely have the wrong job, you know. <laughs> no, her I, but, you
1: know, Claire. I yeah. Mean,
2: no, I, I I I mean, I honestly say I love all the characters. I mean, I don't.
1: You if, say you don't care if people don't like your characters. You, I mean, no, I. No, I,
2: I have to. I I can't not stand her. I mean, I I have to weirdly be her. You know, and I mean, um, I'm still
1: gonna watch her, but I just, am, I just at the end of the, the second. season... Well, it's season, only I'm it's just,
2: only two seasons. I mean, we got a whole another one on the way. I know
1: that's Let's true. See.
2: But I mean, it, you know, one of the things that we try to pay a lot of attention to is uh, it, it'd be very easy to just have Claire and Francis be sociopaths that they. You know characters that completely lack um, the ability to feel or connect or show empathy or compassion, uh, and while they don't show those qualities a lot, they do have them. Um, whether it's seeing Kevin uh, at his alma mater with his buddies, or seeing the way that Claire, when when the president's wife calls her up and says you're a good person, when she knows that she's really responsible for. Um, everything that's going wrong with their marriage and the way she breaks down. I mean, right. she's feeling real guilt there. Um, there's a cost, you know? She's she's making choices that maybe you and I might not make, um, but she's not doing, she's not making those choices in a void. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, for a lot of people who are, you know, incredibly ambitious and, and want to be the first couple, they have to turn their backs on a lot of things that, we hold dearly i mean her love for adam galloway was not as important as the significance that she would eventually um uh, achieve by by entering the white house and so you know if, if that leads you to not stand her i mean part of that i think can you know and i find myself in this position too of being afraid of the things they do fearing the side of us that might be capable to turn our back on the things that um we think we most care about i mean i I wrote a play uh, called *The Parisian Woman*, which is sort of inspired by a play by uh, a playwright, a French playwright you've never heard of named Henri Beck. It's a predecessor of like Strindberg and and uh, Chekhov and Ibsen. They were all reading him, and um, so the 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 whole play centers around a character. It's very much like Claire, but imagine. You know, turn of the century Paris, Um, and I sort of updated it to DC. I I wanted to work out some things with this character that I I hadn't been able to in House of Cards. And she um, she's talking to a young lover uh, who is despondent. That that she is saying, "Go, leave me behind. You need to live your own life, and you have a career to think about." And the young lovers passionately saying, screw my career. I care about my love for you. And, and, and this character, which I think is very like Claire, uh, says, don't make the mistake of putting love before work. Uh, love comes and goes. It easily happens on its own. But, uh, but what you work for is fragile and takes a lifetime to build. It's a provocative thing to say, because we're led to believe from birth that love is the most important thing. And one of the questions we ask in House of Cards is, is it? Um, Sometimes I wonder, you know, uh, whether, whether the love for work is more important than the love for love. Really? Yeah.
1: You've claimed that I know that that you think that Frank and Claire have a very honest, happy marriage. Not happy.
2: They don't believe in happiness. sorry. Honest,
1: (coughs) healthy, healthy marriage. Well, yeah.
2: yeah. Okay, continue. Sorry.
1: (laughs) That's okay. But but a lot of people watching, I think, may be perplexed by that statement. Why do you think their relationship is healthy?
2: Well, healthy is a relative term in the sense. Now, if by healthy we mean two people... Who understand one another, who uh, show each other a great deal of respect, who admire one another, who who give each other liberty, uh, and who have managed to find a way to stay together for almost 30 years, Um, I would say that's healthy. Now they've made their own rules. The vows that they may have taken in a church are not necessarily the vows they live by, but in most couples that I know that have been together for many decades, they end up establishing their own rules Uh, one way or the other along the way, because we all change. The world changes around us. And in order to adapt to each other, um, we have to adapt in terms of the parameters of of what a union is. Um, Neither one of them believes in happiness. uh, And I personally don't believe in happiness. I mean, I I think happiness is a form of complacency. It's like, the moment you're happy, then what? You know? You just go on being kind of happy. Um... (laughs)
1: A happy, boring person.
2: I don't. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. I mean, it's it's what what is that? I mean, um, I don't know what happiness is. I believe in joy. I mean, I believe in, in um, walking, you know, out out onto the street today and seeing the beauty of these mountains and breathing a type of air that I haven't breathed in a long time. <laughs> uh, and uh, maybe it's just the lack of oxygen, but I, <clears throat> you know, a sense of joy. Uh, but a sort of sustained kind of baseline happiness um, is not some, I mean she's said it herself to the the dying guy in the hospital, what well, we like to call the hospital hand job scene. Um, she goes, he, Francis promised, he didn't promise me happiness. Um, he, he said that it, it would never be boring in fact, he didn't put me on a pedestal. He said what I will give you is something important and significant and exciting, but If you're looking for happiness, I'm not the right guy.
1: Can I talk about some of the other characters, Bo? Doug Stamper, for example. Um, I mean, he is one bizarre dude, right? I mean, he's sexually confused. He's Dickens obsessed. He has mommy issues, right? Um, uh, Michael Kelly, How is he sexually confused? Well, I don't know. I feel like he... Well, repressed. How about that? I, I feel like he's repressed... Right, because of his relationship with Rachel, I yeah. think he's very. Ambivalent. I mean, he has no
2: problem like sliding four hundred dollars into a prostitute's mouth, and then at the same time, you know, I think where he where it becomes confusing for him is when um, when genuine feeling becomes uh, sort of collides with uh, physicality.
1: Yeah, tell me tell me how you went about forming this character because I find him fascinating. I'm very upset about his, uh, spoiler alert, have people seen this? Um, but anyway. Uh, Can I mean, we
2: talk about season two? Yeah, okay,
1: Everybody, Okay. good. <laughs> but uh,
3: yeah,
1: yeah, I'm going to get to season three, don't you worry. I don't think he's going to give up much though. Will um, she
2: succeed where others have <laughs> failed?
1: Yeah, uh. yeah I'm going to try. But, but tell us a little bit about, about Doug and where did the Dickens thing come from I think it's fascinating I have
2: a good answer to that actually okay um, Doug Stamper well the the first thing I said to Michael Kelly in season one is I said all right by the end of this season I don't want anyone to have any idea of who the fuck you are like and I don't want you to emote the entire season so just say your lines give us nothing because in season two, slowly but surely, we'll start to peel things back, and and people will be sort of thirsting for that at that point. Um, But that was also like a a sneaky way for me to not have to admit that I had no idea who this guy was and where he was going to (laughs) head to. And and then a a remarkable thing happened, which really differentiates uh, television from film, which is you can respond to what you're seeing uh, in front of the cameras and that can begin to inform scripts that follow. And you make discoveries, and things change, uh, and you continue to talk with the actors. It's, it's much closer to the theater, in fact, uh, in that regard. And Peter Russo, played by the amazing Corey Stahl, uh, was blowing us away. I mean, he was always meant to be a, a, a big character. He was always meant to meet his demise, but he was never meant to run for governor. Uh, and when I saw him and Kevin on screen in those first couple episodes, I thought, we, I got it. We gotta dig into him deeper. We gotta give him more. I wanna see more of him and Kevin. I mean, writing the show is, is in a way similar to watching it. I share the same expectations that the audience has. Like, I want more of that guy. You know, and I don't even know why, but I need more of Peter Russo, Corey Stahl. So what I did is I took this storyline for another character that was supposed to run for governor. Uh, we hadn't cast that character yet. I switched all that story over to Peter Russo, had to rewrite a ton of episodes, and then I thought Okay, who can we bring back from Peter's past that will help us with his downfall? And, and I thought to this wonderful actress, Rachel Brosnahan, um, who had just done those couple scenes for us in, in the first two episodes. And I thought, what if? What if she? And I, I was starting to play with like, in this world, people shouldn't just disappear. Their lives go on. They come back. You know, they, they, they boomerang. And I started to write her back in, and of of course when that character comes back in, Stamper has to confront her uh, and deal with her. And then this relationship started to form uh, that I had in no way ever planned, really didn't know where it was going, and just, I would sort of go episode by episode watching the two of them work and letting that inform the next one. It's very organic. Uh, And then we got to season two, uh, and I knew that this was a major thread that we wanted to follow. Now, in terms of, what we reveal about Stamper and who he is, and, and the, the strange things about him. I mean, you have to... The main thing we wanted to deal with is that this is a guy who is all about control. You know? Fuck the zero. Um, anyone who has committed himself in this deeply loyal way to Francis Underwood for so many years um, has to do so almost with the obsessive, uh, maniacal persistence that that is difficult to connect with. Um, <clears throat> but what Rachel did is brought chaos into the mix. Uh, and and then for a guy to whom I had said, don't emote, don't give us anything, the big question is, what does it look like when he does? Um, and so he starts to feel something for Rachel. And then you get to Tale of Two Cities, right? So um, the reason why it's Tale of Two Cities is because right after Ides of March, I had a, a two-picture deal with Warner Brothers. and. And for years they'd been trying to make a, a, a adaptation of Tale of Two Cities. Like twenty years they've been working on this. Um, and in a very hubristic way, I thought I was going to be the one that was going to deliver, right? So there had already been like six writers before me, great writers, huge actors attached. Um, and I said, "I'm the one. I can do it." And they said, "Okay, all right, give it a try." And I wrote my version, which was no better or worse than the amazing versions before mine. Um, and not surprisingly, they decided not to make it. Um, but, it, you know, it was a bitter pill for me. It was, like, the first time, at least in Hollywood, where someone said, hey, yeah, okay, you know, no thanks. Um, and I, I've always wanted to, like, see that and to, like, make that movie. And I never will get to, but I was like, I can get a paragraph in. <laughs> no one can stop me on House of Cards. And... Um, and there's something about Dickens, too, which I guess, you know, I, he's, he, is, he would have been a great TV writer, you know, um, and just a little sort of homage to that great st- storyteller. But more than anything, just my own sort of petty bitterness, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know that, that you are a recovering alcoholic, and, and, and I'm curious because I know both Doug and, and uh, Peter Russo have issues with addiction. And and how did your own personal experiences sort of color your those characters, and how did you use that?
2: Um, well, I guess, I, I, I guess, uh, I mean, it's sort of a vast question, right? Because uh, you know, to me, like uh, the fact that I'm an alcoholic is sort of like no different than someone having diabetes. You know, it's like um, people say like you know oh you've been sober that long congratulations I'm like no would you say congratulations someone's like I've been taking insulin shots for 13 years you're like oh no that sucks you have diabetes right you're not sort of like so I, 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 I see alcoholism is um, you know it's in my genes you know everyone in my family has it luckily I uh, admitted it and recognized it early on um, it's something that you know is part of me and I have to contend with so I, I don't see it in this deep sort of way Um, you know I I do I have seen the way it can ruin people's lives and I remember times in my life where um, you know it it is you know pushed me to pretty bleak you know emotional territory Um, and and that stuff that I draw upon not just for the characters uh, who are recovering or fail to recover in House of Cards but every character Um, I mean you know you stare into some pretty deep abysses and um, you know that's you know, that's like golden for a writer, you know. Um, so i I'm never, I have no regrets. And I don't, t- you know, I would never take any of those years back and change them. Um, but I think <clears throat> the key thing in terms of stamper is in order to, I mean, alcoholism is a form of uh, chaos, you know. And one way that you, con- you can compensate for it in recovery is um, an obsession with control. Uh, and that makes sense for him. And, and for Peter Russo, um, you know, he's sort of the classic example of a, of a guy who um, was never. I mean, and I'm looking at it more through Francis Underwood's eyes. He was never going to be sober. Um, he, in terms of Francis Underwood, like he saw what he did as like a mercy killing. You know, all he did is accelerate. A process that was going to be long and painful, and it's incredible to me that a, a lot of folks say, "Oh, I felt so bad for Peter. I I, I liked him so much." And here is a guy who neglected his children, cheated on his girlfriend, you know, um, did all sorts of substances, uh, and yet, you know, people sympathize with him. Um, you know, I actually probably sympathize with Peter Russo a lot less than a lot of people in this room because I don't actually. You know, I, I on the one hand, like feel a, a, a bond with anyone who's had any substance issues, but on the other hand, like pretty, like not very much patience for it either. It's like get your shit together. Like you got a problem, deal with it. You know, um, take your insulin shots. Uh, so I'm, I'm probably a lot tougher on those two guys than people who aren't in recovery.
1: I, I feel like I gave. Uh, Frank Underwood, a little bit of short shrift, and I just want to want to ask you about this whole breaking of the fourth wall, Bo. You know where he turns to the camera and makes some kind of weird pronouncement, which always makes me laugh in a good way. You know, just because he's so, you know, it's
2: smarmy is the port- word. Right? Portentous
1: yeah. too, yeah. you know, in those <laughs> moments, and and that was done in the BBC series as well, right? Uh, did you ever have any reservations about?
2: Keeping that sort of no, I, right away. First conversation with the Fincher, I said I'd like to keep the direct address, and he said I do too. Like we both loved that. We we thought it was such a sort of wonderfully bizarre thing to do that that would, um, if we did it right, elevate the show. Um,
1: and he's the only one though who does it. Yeah, yeah,
2: no. It, well, you know, it, it, we're sort of while we have a huge cast and and are following a lot of different people's stories. Uh, very much at the center of it is Francis Underwood it's it's his story his trajectory along with Claire I mean I really actually see it's it's both of them but it just you know it doesn't feel right for her to turn it to the camera I mean she um you know as I said her power comes from what she doesn't say you know and uh look you know it's not as common in TV although our show isn't the only one that does it um but it's been common in in terms of you know the stage, certainly for centuries. Uh, you know, I, I think that Andrew Davies probably stole it from Mr. Shakespeare. Uh, so so uh, and everyone gets to steal from Shakespeare. It's like free reign. You know, take take what you can and don't ever look back. Um, so yeah, stole that outright, and um, it's been a lot of fun. It's also a huge struggle. It's a lot of responsibility because you're. you're uh, narratively, because you're taking on this like pretty heightened device that can take you straight out of the drama, and your goal is to actually make it um, deep in the drama. So uh, when we fail, we we really fail badly, and, and hopefully those make their way, you know, on the well, there is no cutting room floor anymore; it's all digitized. But the cutting room floor, um, sometimes, uh, you know, I look back at, at a few that we did in season one or two, and I'm like, uh, sort of wince. Uh, we could have done so much better. Should have just been a look there, um, but you know, I mean, it, the trial and error of it all is uh, kind of part of the fun.
1: I think it makes it fun, and and when it comes to Frank's character, I know you you uh, basically pulled some things from Richard the Third, which Kevin performed in, right, and a little bit of LBJ I read as well.
2: Well, I, look, uh, w- I mean, yeah. we, we've pulled from. All sorts of things. I mean, uh, yeah, Richard the Third is uh, easy, you know. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. And Kevin was doing a world tour of Richard the Third for nine months before we went into filming. I guess I so. read
1: that that really helped him.
2: Yeah, for of. sure. I mean, he did it. I mean, he did a, a, a something like 199 performances across the globe. Um, and we discussed Richard the Third a lot because it was on his brain, and uh, you know, but also uh, the guy in the Scottish play. I can't mention his name because we're technically on a stage. Um, also, uh, you know, Coriolanus, Richard II, Henry IV, Part One and Two. I mean, there's there's so much to draw from. Um, LBJ for sure, but you know, uh, FDR, Nixon, Cheney, um, you know, Jefferson, Adams uh Truman I mean th- there's so many different little elements you can draw from in fictional characters as well I mean look at movies like uh The Candidate for instance uh, you know look at look at um you know great documentaries like Street Fight or The War Room I mean th- it's endless um you know it, drawing from my own dad you know and drawing from myself I guess so you put all that in a blender and then um you know you get a guy who goes uh you know I love that woman more than sharks love blood yeah. That's my bad version of it.
1: Um,
2: why did I just do that? that was
1: so and and how much fun is it when people are so shocked by plot twists? For example, Poor Zoe, you know, I, although I didn't care for her. I didn't her either. sense a lot of yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I didn't You're, like her at all. Um
4: <laughs>
2: most journalists don't.
1: Um but and then you did the other thing. What do you call it? Uh the 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 thre- chum which was pretty yeah. shocking. The threesome between. We also the-
2: call it the meet-around.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, do you do you realize? First of all, I know that with the with uh, the the Zoe character, you guys did a whole thing where you were taking shots on the set and completely faking people out and all that. So you must enjoy that.
2: Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean. Um- I don't know. I mean, it, it's weird. It's like I'm not sitting with someone on their couch, uh, watching them watch those moments. I, I mean, you should. That would be a little odd <laughs> if, like, you know, ring the doorbell and say, "Let's watch an episode of House of Cards together." Um, I, I uh, you
1: can come watch some with me. <laughs> okay.
2: All right. Um, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of like by the time it gets to all of you, it's many, many, many months in the past for me, um, and I'm already tearing my hair out over what we're going to do the next season um it certainly was fun 37 minutes after we released season two um if you were following the twitter feeds like the house of cards hashtags or whatever um at at minute 37 it felt like we broke twitter uh because <laughs> there was just an endless stream and all all the tweets they they boiled down to three main tweets one was wtf one was omg and the other was holy shit and it was just that like omg omg wtf holy shit omg wtf holy shit like endlessly um that was and we're all standing there yeah laughing our asses off i mean this was i mean i look uh with with a character like zoe um you know, we don't do something like that just to say, hey, how can we really throw the audience for a loop, like a twist for twist's sake. Uh, she needed to go, you know, and she needed to go because Francis, uh, <clears throat> you can't keep climbing the mountain if someone's tugging on your leg as you try to climb. I mean, it was, just, it was an act of self-preservation. And if Russo's death was one of opportunity, uh, we needed to see in, in his evolution or de-evolution uh, that he was capable of doing this that that if the the question of house of cards is or one of them is how far is he willing to go uh, we need to constantly push the boundaries of that question and um, yeah Zoe Zoe was collateral damage
1: will her cute earnest boyfriend reappear because we haven't really <laughs> Lucas heard much. Goodwin yeah, yeah.
2: Um, there's only one way to find out yes
1: you know. okay well then speaking of season three because I want to talk to you about your, your off-Broadway play. You're working on two documentaries as well. Um, we, and I want people in the audience, obviously, to get a chance to uh, ask you some questions. But, you know, okay, so now they've gotten everything they wanted. They're in the White House. How challenging is it to kind of keep, because their whole their whole lives have been kind of focused on this, this ultimate power grab. So now that they've achieved it, is it challenging to figure out how to keep things interesting? Because I guess they have to keep well, it. Well, uh,
2: look, it's challenging, but not to keep things interesting. I mean, it's 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 a challenge. That question, that precise question, is the crux, you know, of of moving forward. Um, when your entire identity is directional, um, it's all very clear and it makes sense. And when you've tr- achieved your destination, it's sort of like what I was talking about with happiness. Like, once I get to be happy. Then what? I mean, that's like a form of hell to me, right? Like, so um, you know, once you get there, then then what do you do with the with that achievement? Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to tell you what they do. Uh, can you give you l-
1: us any little insights at all into anything we can look for, expect something? A little something.
2: Come on, girl. <laughs> oh, This is <laughs> absolutely not. No, I, I can't. No, as adorable as you're being right now, and this <laughs> smile. I mean, you've all seen it for years, but like when it's this close to you, it's just really hard. Actually, like she's she's like casting a spell, and um, uh. But I, I look. This, you do not. <laughs> This is truly difficult, actually. Um, I feel like I—I uh, don't know. I, 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 was it easier with Michael Eisner? Yeah, yeah, no, that was really easy to say no to him. Uh, but, but I feel—I feel it's like it's your birthday, and I forgot to bring you a present, and you're being so cool about it. You're like, it's okay. I'll have another birthday in a year. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> But you guys don't want me to ruin anything for you. No, we don't want you to ruin
1: anything. But is but even the
2: slighty teeny little bit is ruining it.
1: You think so? Okay. Nobody wants any any little (laughs) teeny. Okay, little soup song of something. Okay, all right. No,
2: all 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 I'll say is this: is is, uh, your question is the exact question that we started the writers' room with for season three, Um, and. You know, I think it's a question that all presidents must ask themselves uh, uh, once they get there, which is, uh, I have four or eight years, um, at most, uh, to, uh, to, to do something. Uh, and what am I going to do, and, and what, is, what does it all mean? You know, when it's all just about getting there, uh, that is a meaning in and of itself. You know, the, the struggle, the journey. Um, but once you win, uh, it's like that great final moment in *The Candidate*. Uh, Robert Redford is in a broom closet, avoiding his own victory party, and the campaign manager comes in and says, "Come on, we got to go out here." And he goes, "Like, uh, you know, you won." And he goes, "Yeah, I know, but now what?" You know, and that that's played more for comedy and satire there, but it's a very serious question for the Underwoods.
1: I know that Netflix bought two seasons, right? And and so, how long do you envision this series going on?
2: Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I I have a a pretty clear uh, image in my mind for the end of the series. Um, what year that is, I can't tell you. Um, I have a sort of t- a, a kind of basic gut level timeline of what I feel might be um, the right length of time for this show. Um, but but that's like a discussion that you know, I'll have with MRC and Netflix at some point. Um, and I'm definitely not going to tell you right now, but <laughs> but I do I do think that in television in general, people have come to expect more and more a, a real resolution to their stories. I mean, it's not like the days of, um, you know, Cheers is on air for 10 years and they're like, last season, it's like, okay, uh, we got to come up with an ending here that somehow feels like these 10 years have sewn themselves up. I mean, there's a definite trajectory an arc to the Underwood story um, but I can't tell you how many years yet Yeah, yeah. I, I, but look when you have shows like what David Chase did with the end of The Sopranos or certainly what Breaking Bad did in its final season um, you know p- people have come to expect end- endings as they should and, and luckily we're in a TV making environment where networks and studios will actually uh, allow for that they won't just like let it peter on into like it's you know the show is like has a walker and you know is shitting its own pants. But you
1: know? it is it, oh, lovely. But it is a, <laughs> it, it it is it I is mean, a I'm lot sorry, of pressure because you don't I want you don't want to no it's fine but you don't <laughs> want to feel like you know it's a lot of pressure. You don't want anyone to say Ugh, that really jumped the shark this season, right?
2: Yeah, but it, I don't approach story that way. I mean, it, it's not sort of like how do we keep them interested? How do we keep them interested? Uh, you know, the smallest, tiniest thing can be uh, cataclysmic. You know, um, it, it it's, you know, Proust wrote you know, thousands of pages about a cookie. You know, um, it's... Uh, as long as the characters uh, are continuing to change and to, to grapple with themselves and the world around them, uh, every character is actually endless. The hard part is actually... In removing things, there's a million different ways I could go with House of Cards. And I, I mean, I, I could write a whole season about uh, Rachel Posner. Um, it, it's actually what do you remove, you know, and how do you remain focused? And if you do that well, then you're telling a good story. And if you're telling a good story, people remain interested.
1: I don't want to be t- a total pig about these questions. So I know that we have some questions from the audience.
4: In the real world, obviously, uh, the American public has historic disapproval and distrust for the United States Congress. So I'm curious, Bo, as you were creating House of Cards, if you thought the show would have any impact on the real U.S. Congress.
2: Uh, that's like a recipe for disaster. I mean, the moment that you presume to think that uh, anything you make uh, in the world of make believe is is gonna Percolate into the real world in any substantive way. You're you're engaged in some sort of other project. I mean, whether it's propaganda, didacticism, or um, you know, I, I uh, you know, for me, it's a very selfish thing. I write to please myself, and and if other people are pleased and connect with it, I'm thrilled. Um, but uh, art making as a vessel for like communicating something in a way other than something that's deeply personal for me is um, not fruitful. Uh, so, you know, uh, this the show doesn't have a political agenda. All we try to do is... Um, you know, have a certain degree of authenticity. We, we do have an extreme, exaggerated version of, of power for power's sake. I mean, it's n- not a portrait of Washington uh, in, in, in its totality, uh, and no show could be. Um, it's a very complicated, vast place. Um, so, you know, I, I think it would have been incredibly presumptuous and foolhardy to think that we were somehow going to impact Washington.
1: But Washington has embraced it. I think I have a lot of friends who live in Washington, work in politics, and they think you've made their town suddenly much more glamorous and interesting <laughs> than it really is. And I know you've gotten a lot of support from people on the Hill. You've met with Steny Hoyer, Frank Underwood's office. Isn't is it a... a well, a, a Kevin rep-
2: McCarthy's really helped us out, and look where he is now. There you go. <laughs> mm. um, the... the uh, the, the response we've gotten in Washington has really been terrific. I mean, you know, if you're going to write about a, a, a town, you hope that those people would in, embrace it. Um, you know, we're not out to please them. In fact, at times, you know, we're pretty scathing in the way that we portray folks, and you never know how they'll re- respond to that. But I think everyone gets a kick out of, um, you know, seeing their world depicted, except journalists. Uh, they don't like it. Um, and uh, uh, the... Uh, you know the response we got in Washington. I think they understand what what we're up to. That that we're not trying to tell their entire story. We're just trying to tackle sort of a sliver of it, and pretty dark sliver. Um, and we've gotten a lot of help from people on both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, we do a hell of a lot of research. I mean, you know, I'm talking to former White House counsels or solicitor generals or um, you know, people who have uh, been in the cabinet. Um, you know, we're talking to all sorts of people to make sure that we, we kind of know, you know what we're talking about, and that if we're going to break rules or fudge them, at least we know when we're breaking the rules.
4: Anybody else uh, here? Yes, I've
1: got one. Hello? Where are you? Oh, hi. Hi. Sorry.
2: So uh, I'm
4: fascinated by the way you develop the Frank Underwood character, as I think everyone is fascinated. And he's this incredible master manipulator who creates these, these gigantic webs that people fall into that becomes sort of Shakespearean inevitability where he ends up, they just walk down this tragedy that he's created for them, and it's And my question for you is, it seemed a little out of character to me that he would actually do the murdering himself of Zoe or of Peter. And I wonder if you wrestled with that. It's a little incongruous that here he is, this incredible manipulator, and yet he gets his hands dirty and actually... Does why wouldn't he create something yeah, it's that just very, caused them to die? It's a
2: very <laughs> insightful question that a lot of people have asked me before, and, and um, certainly I put a great deal of thought into that, and we talked about it in the room a bit—not um, a bit, a lot. <clears throat> it's important that he does it himself because uh, uh, you know it, you know, remember we're going for the drama here, and I'm not talking the drama just like, you know, it's more dramatic if he does it himself, but we need to see that he is, like, emotionally um, committed to this, you know, and if if there's too many layers of remove, uh, then it, it, it becomes a little bit too ambiguous as to whether he knows that he's definitively making this choice, you know, um, and that sort of remove is interesting. I mean, in fact, our president's, uh, constantly are dealing with that sort of remove. They'll make a decision uh, in, a, in a in the cabinet room, which will result in many people dying. You know, um, I wanted to take that away, and I wanted you to know that this man was capable of doing it, and that, that there was no uh, ifs or buts about it. Um, so it could seem incongruous in terms of you know a, a guy who's very sort of manipulative uh, and and sort of works around the edges to sort of um, construct. Uh, scenarios to work out the way he wants them to but when it comes to these big things uh, sometimes he has to literally get his hands dirty and that's as much a part of him the ruthless the utter and brutal ruthlessness that the the act of violence is all of this um sort of more intellectual conniving We have time for a couple more yeah can i
1: give you one right here
3: uh
2: yeah but let's let's i'm up here bro Okay, let's mix it up, though. Let, okay. There's been no women who've gotten a chance to ask. Yeah,
1: what's wrong with yeah. you women? Don't <laughs> <to happen. Yeah. laughs>
2: but I'm Why don't not, you I'm share not. the microphone with the young lady next to you? <laughs> yeah.
1: You go ahead, though. You can go you, first. Yeah.
3: L- ladies first? No, go <laughs> ahead. Bo, um, first I want to tell you that I've never seen an artist speak so frankly and so directly, and I know that it's an enormously difficult thing for most people, so I give you my utmost praise, and I'm one of the guys... It's just
2: me at 8,000 feet, man. Yeah, yeah,
3: that's cool, (laughs) but I'm one of the guys that said, holy shit, what the fuck, and oh my God. (laughs) um, Katie voiced her disappointment, which I shared in the devolution of Claire's character, and by extension, the power grab that Frank and Claire got, and you seem unconcerned, as you did yesterday, when I saw you speak about the moral issues raised by murder, betrayal, and euthanasia, which you describe as a mercy killing. Um, what I,
2: I, I, to be clear, I'm describing it from Frank's point of view. Yes, but you created Frank.
3: And <laughs> and <laughs> I just came from David Brooks' lecture on character.
2: What, what's your name again?
3: Robert Lehrman. Mm.
2: Okay. Thank you.
3: Okay. <laughs> and... David Brooks describes character as doing the right thing and that the lack of character is doing the expedient thing. And what I think is fascinating is you've just said that you've got a chance to address that question because now Frank can say, what am I going to do? What does it mean? And I was just shocked that you didn't feel that those actions were moral, immoral. They were just
2: what happened. I don't know if that's a question more than a comment, but there it is. Uh, Well, morality is a tricky subject, right? Because uh, everyone's moral spectrum is different. Um, It's not as though Francis doesn't have a code or he doesn't have a sense of, uh, I mean, I guess guess he doesn't have the same sort of sense of right and wrong that most people believe they have. And let's draw a distinction between who you think you are and who you actually are. Right, because um, really all of us are hypocrites. We all contradict ourselves. We all know what's right in our minds, and often do the opposite. Um, so he's doing an extreme version of that, I guess. Although he's taking out the part where he admits that it's wrong. Uh, in France's worldview, I mean, he says at the top of season two, it's sort of like his thesis. You know, f- there's no no mercy on the savanna. It's hunter be hunted. Uh, and in his mind, uh, Zoe is hunting him, and if he doesn't get to her first, he—he's the one that's gonna, you know, end up behind bars, his life ruined, his freedom taken away from him, all of his dreams and hopes shattered. Uh, is that, that 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 takes you out of morality and into survival? And I think ultimately, and this is what power essentially comes down to, is power has nothing to do with morality. It has to do with survival and advantage. Um, And, you know, violence is the most extreme version of power. Uh, And it's the reason why we all get to sit comfortably here in an air-conditioned room in Aspen, because we control the oceans, you know, because we can kill the people that we need to. you know. Uh, every, I've said before in interviews, and it's not that every president is a murderer. murderer I've been misquoted. It's every president has to be capable of killing. Um, and if you're not, you don't deserve to be in that office. We entrust that person with such immense power so that they will do the thing that we don't want to do or think about, which is be willing to kill. Uh, And what we're seeing in Francis is that boiled down to its purest form in one man's life.
1: Um, I, for one, am thrilled there was a cancellation and that You're here, (laughs) because I think you're brilliant and incredible. Um, As a former television writer, I would love to address the topic that was titled for this, which is the risky business of
3: writing. You have kind of a unique situation. Could you talk about the process and how much control you have and stuff? But first, Katie, I have to ask you as a woman do we expect women to be better than men i mean you didn't say you were really disappointed with frank
1: underwood well i think i knew that frank was a terrible person from the beginning and i thought that that claire was had had more redeeming qualities and might kind of have more of a moral compass and as i saw her devolve i was i was disappointed so um You know, I see Frank as more of a caricature, honestly, as somebody who's who's grabbing power. And in many ways, Claire is as well. But no, I don't necessarily expect women to be better than men. I just that was just Um, an observation.
2: um, You know, it's it saddens me to hear of them talked about as caricature. I mean, everyone's sort of experience of the show is valid. So if that's your experience, I mean, it's it's uh, you know, it's absolutely valid. I mean, I to me. you know I'm still discovering them you know I, I don't know I don't know how a man um, who sings with his buddies in the basement of the Sentinel and grapples with a time in his life where he felt such really you know a, a pure sort of love and has to turn his back on that and has found a diff- different type of love with his wife you know who who at the one uh, one moment, you know, might kill, but at another, um, must lament the loss of friendship when he turns his back on Freddie. I mean, I'm trying to avoid caricature. I'm trying to grapple with cost and with, um, and, and with, uh, you know, the, the, the great gravity of what it means to sacrifice everything in the pursuit of a goal. Um, and I, I, I think Claire has to do the same. You know, it, it's interesting to me. Uh, a, a lot of women have asked about Claire in terms of it's. It's frankly surprised me. Although I I, I um I welcome the conversation and I think it's an interesting one. You know, in terms of uh, Claire is either like feminist hero or total like feminist disaster. Um, and the way I think about Claire is you know. Uh, one of my favorite writers is is Balzac. And if you read, like, Lost Illusions, I mean, the women are just as insidious and self-serving and ruthless as the men. And it it's just, it feels honest, you know? And I think um, if if there's the expectation that she needs to be better or more redeeming because if she's a woman, that's deeply problematic. I mean, you know, th- there's, there's two big mistakes you can make. Uh, you can either have, you can either be misogynistic and neglectful on one end of the spectrum. Uh, you know, so you're either just completely two-dimensionalizing your women roles or ignoring them altogether. Or on the other hand, you can put your women up on a pedestal. They can do no wrong. They're somehow intrinsically better uh, uh, human beings than the men, uh, which is just another form of two-dimensionalization. Um, and for me, really, uh, they they should be as <laughs> equally ruthless and insidious. Um, their stories you know because of their gender might have different aspects you know uh it would be weird for frances to go through you know perimenopause um that's something only a, a woman you know would go through and we, we shouldn't ignore those aspects of her story but we should also not reduce her to that so that is her only story um it's simply a part of her life as it would be uh, that the main story that this couple shares is is their mutual ambition and uh lust for the summit of Everest, I guess. We're out of time, aren't we? Right. Yeah. I,
1: yeah. I, maybe we have time for one more
2: question.
4: I'm one of those people who lock myself into the room when I know season two's coming out, and not until it's done do I start watching it. <laughs> I don't know if anyone can relate to it. It's like hitting a crack pipe or something. <laughs> but um, you know, tonight you've revealed yourself as truly a brilliant artist. And I thought Netflix was just beta testing us on what they were figuring out in order what we wanted to watch a train wreck, and then we wouldn't leave our house like in Portlandia until, you know. So what's really happening? You're like a psychologist who's an artist who's been able to get into the deceit of these characters. And and as the subject is on writing, it's just phenomenal to uh, try to absorb that and understand that. you've. You've said tonight you don't know where it's going. You're just feeling some kind of muse. So, where is it really coming from? How do you do all this? How do you absorb all of it? I know it's a difficult question, but you know, to people like us who are yeah. sitting at home, no, watching I, I just it, don't know the ten We're not just watching a 30-minute yeah. episode. We're watching like 10 hours in the course of a weekend. You know, like nothing gets done. So. Um, uh, I tell people, do not turn on I, House look, of Cards I, if you have anything to do this week.
2: I, I've got a I, look, I'll I, I have. A, I'll try to have a very quick answer. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, I, I'm i embarrassed right now because, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not just trying to be like, um, you know, falsely modest here. Like I, I really don't feel, there's a lot of people who I think you could say those things about and I would, uh, I don't thank you. I, <laughs> I get inarticulate when I'm uh, embarrassed, but but I, that means a lot to me. Um, not This is not a comparison, because this man was a true genius and someone who I don't know if I'll ever come anywhere close to even a glimmer of, of how uh, good an artist he was. But there's a, a great story about Laurence Olivier, um, and he uh, was doing Hamlet, and uh, uh, or maybe it was a Maybe it was Othello. It doesn't matter. Um, Point is, he went out and he gave this performance uh, truly of a lifetime. I mean, uh, everyone in the audience knew that they had seen something extraordinary that they um, would never see again, repeated. Uh, And uh, he went backstage after, you know, endless standing O, and he he goes into his his dressing room, he locks the door, and his friends are pounding on the door, you know, Larry, Larry, what's going on? You know, open up, and he finally does, and he's like, sitting there with his head in his hands, just shaking his head, and they go, what's wrong? You just gave the amor- the, the performance of a lifetime. I mean, you should be ecstatic. And he goes, yes, I, I did it, and uh, I have no idea how I did it, you know? Um, and, and look, it, the only reason I bring that up is because, I mean, if I had any idea how I did it, uh, even to ma- make something that's only a shadow of what people like Lawrence or Olivier do, then, I mean, um, I guess I don't know why. I mean... Kind of the not knowing how uh, is is part of the fun and the struggle, and um, you know it's if the final thing I'll say on this is like even when you think you figured it out, the only way to keep going is is to keep tackling the things you don't know how to do. My dad always said to me, "Any job you know how to do isn't a job worth doing." So just when I'm like, "Okay, I think I figured out this character," I'm like, "Fuck! Well now I've got to let that character go." because there's nothing more to do so I've got to start banging my head against the wall in a different way and ultimately art making is I think trial and error There's, it's not you don't get any better at it your your, your skull just gets thicker
1: well Bo, thank
0: you so much for sticking around this was so fun, thanks everybody for coming that was Bo Willimon and Katie Couric, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 29, 2014 The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and from across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that both shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can also follow the festival on Twitter at Aspen Ideas and at Facebook slash Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.